drop. everyone, Christian Wynn here, the director of StoryFort, and you're listening to StoryFort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this March we have been postponed until September of 2021. And then we're coming back to March in 2022. So we're excited for both those fests to happen within six months of each other. But hey, today we're still here to tell you about all things Treefort. And Larry Rosen and I are co-hosting this episode. And we are chatting with Ben Tanzer and Bill O'Neill. Ben Tanzer is a very awesome writer, podcaster. Oh, he's a teacher. He's a supporter of the arts. He's a Chicago guy really great dude who I've gotten a chance to become friends with over the years. And Bill O'Neill, who is a New Mexico state senator, as well as a poet and a fiction writer, he's going to be sitting down with us. And Ben and he are working together on some of his new projects. And we just get into all sorts of stuff. Um, So here it comes. We hope you're doing well. It's springtime here in Boise. The sun is out. Things are beginning to bloom. And stay safe. Get your vaccines and, you know, enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. All right, welcome everyone. We have a special treat for you today. We have an author with an interesting day job, Bill O'Neill who has just published a book of poetry called Definition of Empty, his second book of poetry, coming on the heels of a second novel called Short Session, all while applying his day job as a state senator in New Mexico. We also have Ben Tanzer, who is with Heft Creative Strategies, among other things. Uh, if there's anything I want you to take away from today's session, it's that we got some busy guys here. We got guys who are producing Mm -hmm. stuff. We got guys who are promoting stuff. We got guys who are helping other guys promote stuff. We got busy people. Bill, I want to start with you because one thing I'm interested in is your journey east to west. Ah. And the nature of that journey, you know, before we got on here and we were going back and forth, you know, my journey east to west was controlled entirely by my parents. They brought me out here. But yours has a little bit of that old romantic hobo cowboy stuff around (laughs) it. Well, well, I guess you can start with a big time family issue with my father. Bless his heart. He's passed on, but we did reconcile. But I got out of Cornell and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Every all my jock friends went off to back to Long Island and we went to Wall Street pretty much or law school. And for me, I was a history major at Cornell and looked at I looked at journalism school. I, I applied to international relations school. I applied to law school and and got in some of those places. And then I just my whole journey started when I moved to San Francisco Bay Area. And, and honestly, I just was going through a lot. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And back in those days, at least in my family, it was understood you could take a gap year or two before you really found yourself. I think it's much different these days, but my gap year extended into a decade, (laughs) at least. Um, Gap life. Yeah. Um, What year was this when you first came out? 1970, it was 1980 when I came to San Francisco, to the West Coast. And then what happened for me is I I was captivated by theater. I actually was, uh, there was this method acting school at a abandoned mattress factory in Berkeley, the Gene Shelton School. I just became just involved with method acting, but all, all the while writing. Like I always, I just decided in my adolescent way, I was going to be a writer, a novelist. And I did have the opportunity to study with um, E.L. Doctorow, when I was in college, and that was a really positive experience. So anyway, so just went through um, just a major shift. And in my, see, up until that point in my family, I was kind of like the model kid in a way, like I was dean's list and this and that and in honorary societies. And I actually applied for a Rhodes Scholarship. That was kind of a traumatic situation, that interview, I'll never forget it. 
like eight men around the table grilling me on like why they asked me why who would who would you want to be with for an afternoon and i said muhammad ali duh and they were like <laughs> shocked you know and so so i just realized that i was just on the wrong path and then here comes the artistic world and i didn't know really anything about it other than i was intrigued by it i was a pretty much i played college football yeah. you know and like this was a whole new world in north beach san francisco it was awesome thinking back on it so that's kind of a long way of framing it and then a uh, relationship went bad felt like i needed to move out of town <laughs> and so i went to montana and and so that that montana just swallowed me up everybody there in montana i had some friends in bozeman montana and uh everybody there was like they were like an artist they were a painter or a writer or an actor and we all worked at the same restaurant so anyway that's kind of frames my journey and then why if i'm living in montana why wouldn't you hop a freight train okay it's right there <laughs> are you kidding they stop right there so off I went and onto the freight trains and like just different, uh, you know, jobs just out in the West as my, mm -hmm. my forefather just, yeah, you know, yeah. this was That's having right. a hard time. So, yeah. with what was going I, on. I will chime in too, Mr. Rosen up there, Mr. Larry, who lived in North Beach, um, yeah. above the Grant and Green, oh, you know, nice. sort of in, yeah, so Indian, we yeah. had a, a, you know, sort of, and also sort of the rail yards of, uh, Jack Kerouac fame perhaps informed your decision to hop on yes. rails later on. So. It's a very, it's a very romantic pursuit, and one that I, I can't speak for Ben, but now that I've heard your story and I've known Christian Wynn for over thirty years, it's a pursuit that all of us engaged in at one time. Um, maybe not riding the rails, right? Very right, different we ways. A little late for that, and Ben and I are Jewish, so we wouldn't do that. But right, um, <laughs> excellent point. Though <laughs> so I should say. I also moved to San Francisco right after graduation, wow. 1990, so 10 years after Bill. Okay. And uh, it's funny, Larry, since you and I come from the same part of the world, and Bill and I also, because he was in college in upstate New York, I always tell this story. I woke up with literally, I cannot over-exaggerate how few plans I had as graduation from college was approaching. And unlike Bill, I had no expect, no one cared what I did that I'm aware of. Wow. Um, <laughs> but I woke up one morning and I looked out the window and it was rainy and it was gray, which had really been most of my, and by the way, that's not even like a, a peanuts reference. Like I don't, I never remember being very unhappy, but I looked out the window and it was rainy and gray. And I thought, I'm not going to do another day of this than I have to. Like, that was the first time in my life I just thought, this is not going to continue like this. And I looked out the window and I thought, I better move to California. Like, that was the whole experience. And I just went and told everybody in the house, including my <laughs> then girlfriend, now wife. I said, look, I'm moving to California after graduation because this sucks. And uh, about a week later, I won't give all the details around the drug use that was involved. But one of my friends was like, dude, I'm coming with you. And I was like, oh, cool, you have a car. Like, I had no plan even about my no plans. And we took five <laughs> weeks and we drove to the Bay Area, wow. you know, a month after graduation. And he stayed, not only that, he stayed and he just retired from his job last wow. week, which seems crazy to me. And it was the first job he got when we got there. Now, Matt, so this is, this is a really good segue because I want to talk about the West because cool. – You've sort of recast yourself as a man of the West. Now, Christian went up here in, in my left-hand corner. He is a man of the West. I am. So to him, and I've been, you know, we left Pennsylvania 45 years ago. And I lived, I just moved from San Francisco actually six months ago to Oregon. Wow. During that time, I had forgotten what the West sounds like to someone who spent their life in the East. For the simple reason of the weather. It can be as simple mm -hmm. as that. But so, Bill, when you got out here, did your romantic dream stay intact? It did in a sense. I've become a Westerner. I love this focus because when, when I go back east, you know, Ohio isn't really east, but it is east out here, right? right? But it's like the green is just jarring, you know, and you can't get a good sense of the landscape. That's what really captured me, I think, aesthetically, just you can see for miles. And Miles, boy, of course, Montana is a charmed place, but there's not a whole lot economy-wise. And I'm more of an urban person, so Albuquerque was my was my resting place. A lot of my friends, my Bohemian friends, they moved to Seattle 
or Portland. I actually have family in Portland. But anyway, so to answer your question, I think it has stayed alive in the sense that I've become a Westerner. I mean, I just, that's what I am. What does that, what does that mean to you? It means, wow. Well, let's see. It means the opposite of lots of people. Um, I mentioned the green, <laughs> uh, just kind of a, an openness, uh, kind of an egalitarian at its best, just a firm handshake. I mean, I moved to Albuquerque. Nobody knew who I was. I mean, I'm a state senator here in New Mexico. I still have to pinch myself, right? I didn't mm-hmm. grow up out here, you know, and, and, and when my job and before I got into politics was raising money for my charity, which was a uh, it was like a, it was a halfway halfway house for men and women coming out of prison, a private residential you know, charity program that did that. And my job was to get the money. And, and in Albuquerque, nobody knew who I was, but I just would go from, you know, potential donor to potential donor. And, and like it didn't matter. It just it was wide open. You know, it wasn't like a, a hierarchy that that I probably you know, left. I was probably situated pretty well in the hierarchical mode back east you know like i could have i mean went to cornell and you know I, I just i just went in a different direction so how much of this is about a sense that and ben you can chime in too from sure. kind of the other point of view the east point of eastern though you're in chicago now right yes so sort of an eastern midwestern point of view how much of this is about the possibility of if not reinvention then just the sky's the limit I can do whatever I want out here. You know, it's funny, Larry, even maybe we're vibing here. Even before you asked the question, I thought, this sounds like reinvention we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's funny to me because I went to San Francisco for two years, then New York City for two years, and now I've been out here forever for a variety of reasons that aren't that interesting. But, you know, I would have said to you as I started thinking about what I actually thought you were going to ask about reinvention, I think I was going to say, I clearly had that on my mind heading out west, thinking that's where you go to reinvent yourself. I think one of the things I've discovered, and, and I do think this comes from a place of privilege, right? I mean, I can, I've always been able to find work. I've always been able to do what I want. And maybe Bill feels a little bit that way about himself, too, that you're actually allowed to reinvent yourself wherever you move. I think the misnomer is that it's supposed to be one place or another. Whereas I went to San Francisco and became a version of myself, that was true, but it was a different, that version was, can I play ultimate Frisbee? Can I take a lot of drugs? Can we go see the Grateful Dead? And I was great at that. (laughs) And, and can I start figuring out my career? So my goal, my bar was very low. And so I was a master. Then I went to New York City and I thought, okay, can I be a caseworker? Can I be more involved with my family? And that was also true. And then I came to Chicago and I thought, Can I be an intellectual? Can I start writing? And so each of these places has allowed that. I think we think we're not allowed to do that unless we pick the right spot. And I'm definitely realizing as I get older that it's really up to you, though I will suggest the West is the best place to do it. That part for sure. Well, that's sort of, that's an old, you know, that's an old American adage. But what's interesting about what you just said is the ways you chose to reinvent yourself, at least in the first two places, vibe very well with those places like you don't necessarily come to san francisco to well maybe if you're a tech guy but you don't come here thinking this is where i'm going to become a stockbroker and i'm going to wear suits and i'm going to you know dominate this and you don't go to new york going this is where i'm going to become a deadhead it just doesn't work well what's funny which i'm sure you and bill can appreciate so i'll defer over to bill is that you know when i got to san francisco tech i mean obviously tech must have been a thing but it wasn't actually the thing you could live anywhere. I mean, we lived there so cheaply in what now remains as an adult, the most palatial apartment I've ever lived in in my life. And I wasn't making any money. And we lived like kings and queens. Like I lived with a, this guy who latched onto me, who I loved to death. And then these two women we sort of found in different ways. And the four of us rented this enormous apartment. It was so big that when the Oakland fires hit, two of our friends moved into the living room or into the dining room, and they had enough room to live there for three months, which you can wow. do when you're 22. So you're right. I did pick the right. And I think that's something I've been good at, which is this is the place to do that. Now I'm going right. to go do that. Like I've never written a sentence outside of Chicago. Like I didn't even start hmm. writing till I was in my 30s. And so this and then I start writing in what was really for a minute probably the best place to write in the country. You know, 10 years ago, I think Chicago was the place. 
And mm-hmm. that's when I was picking up steam. So I've also been very lucky. I've sort of known where to go and everyone's been cool when I got there. And that's, you know, that's great. So it, it's interesting because Ben's moves, I'm not going to say calculated, but they're with purpose. Whereas Bill, oh, you just kind of rolled into Albuquerque. Right. I know. I want to hear about that. I mean, actually, I came to Albuquerque very intentionally because I was struggling with livelihood. Like, you know, yeah, I'm a waiter. I'm a whatever, but I'm really a writer. But sure, you are. So I just had to figure it out in that way. And because um, I was doing a lot of inner work, I was in therapy. And therapy led me to the outer world, you know, like, okay, I'm clear on my issues, but what about the outer world? And so I moved to Albuquerque to uh, participate in this program called the Center for Action and Contemplation. Uh, After a lot of spiritual exploration, I wanted to check into my own roots, which were Irish Catholic, you know, as an altar boy, whatever. But I, I didn't go to catechism much or anything like that. But anyway, so I was really drawn to the social action dynamic of the Catholic faith. And Mm. so this Albuquerque was perfect for that. There was this intensive two month program. I was an intern, air quotes. And it was, uh, my work site was the homeless shelter in Albuquerque and the county jail. And then when I was in the, at the county jail, I just immediately felt a bond (laughs) with all of these prodigal sons and daughters. And so, um, and not that it's so simple, there's a lot of pain there, but this charity, was looking for a, a development person or somebody to kind of drive the the effort, and I was that person, and and so that that's kind of where it all fell into place for me. I mean, it was really more of it really came from a deep like searching myself, inner you know exploration, both inner and outer, and realizing that the way to find my life was to move outside myself, so that I'm not just looking at my own issues and so that worked really well for me and the next thing i know i'm a state senator in new mexico and i just talk about ohio all the time i torture everybody in my chamber with stories of the buckeyes and my granville high school and how great we were in football and so forth and so on uh, I, went, I went on google maps today and looked at your hometown it's quite idyllic looking i gotta say yes granville but I think there were a few years. I think a few years elapsed, though, in between. Yeah, and becoming a state senator. So. Oh, definitely. Well, I would come. I would come to the session. I'm here at my capital office here um, to advocate for my charity to get corrections funding. And then as soon as I was here, I literally the first day I just was smitten. I just was. You know, always I was a history major in college, but I I actually had that sort of political bug. I was at Boys State in Ohio. I did a uh, an internship in D.C. even before I went to college. So, I mean, I had that, but it was dormant. But when, as soon as I got up here, man, it was like, oh, man, I, this, is, this feels like home. So I wanted to be on the other side of that line, which is what my recent novel is about, which is you know, running for political office in New Mexico, unsuccessfully in this case. Um, but it's just basically that. You know, I've been very fortunate to have been able to make service my vocation. You know, I was searching for my place in the world, and it's just, it's service. And as well as, of course, the writing, which is dear to me. So is, is, yeah. that, is that the common thread then? Yes, very much so, very much so. And so I think um, my my work has a kind of a political dimension in the sense that it gives voice to to men and women who've been in prison. That's a, that, that, those characters figure strongly in both of my novels. And I just, I write from personal experience. I don't know about you all there, but I mean, I just, I do. I, I don't write science fiction or historical fiction. I wish I did, you know, a lot of times, but, but I basically, I write to kind of make sense of the world around me. And so I've been lucky to kind of hook into a, both the poetic form and the fiction form, you know, to be able to kind of share my experience with the world. It's, it's you know, with the notion that it that it would have some meaning to others. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was going to hop in on like the Western angle with definition of empty. I mean, you, you clearly write about, you know, sort of incarcerated juveniles that you've worked with and had the experience of like sitting on 
boards for the series that you're published through is the University of New Mexico Press, correct? Right, right. And and like that series is all about, I mean, their mission is like, you know, basically put the West and the border out there, like as far as like subjects and sort of themes that you're, you're working with. So I'm super curious. I mean, obviously it's geographically in the West where you've been writing from, but what do you think about like that book like have them like and ben can chime in too I mean, his thoughts on this um makes <clears throat> that particular book the definition of you know, of empty like western is it because it is about you know the kind of universal stories too right well i mean i was for three years i was the executive director of the state juvenile parole board governor richardson appointed me to that position which was my reward for running unsuccessfully for for state the state legislature so he knew who I was and and it just worked out so that these stories are rooted in the experience of of New Mexico youth and largely minority I mean unfortunately the juvenile population is at least 70% Hispanic and then the rest Native American black and but there are you know definitely there's an Anglo part to it but but it's um it was just amazing to me. See, I never went, I didn't get my social work degree like Ben. I just started doing the work and I ended up doing the work and meeting with these kids every day and month. And it was just real intense. And so again, just to process that, I would actually, I was a state worker for three years and that was hard. Eight to five. I'm not an eight to five person. No certain friends said, there's no way O'Neill, you can do that. But I did it for three years. But I would go in on the weekends up to my state office and, and write. But to answer your question, yeah, very Western, very New Mexico, very New Mexican. However, a big part of that book, actually, my uh, partner, unfortunately, has MS, and I'm a caregiver as well as, you know, her partner in life. And we took a trip. It's in the book. It's actually, I have some poems uh, going to Idaho and Wyoming and and uh, so it's very Western. I mean, there was there's a there's several poems in that book about going on this trip with my partner, and and, and she was in a lot of pain, unfortunately. But in contrast to like this beauty of the Western landscape, so I just realized that. So the book is not only has that dimension with the juveniles, but it has it with with some very personal poems that are set in the West, which are great. Yeah. Uh, by the way, all that. So, but. So, Bill, you had said, you just said that um, you use writing to sort of process and make sense of things going on around you. And, and I think at this point in your life, you got a lot of things going on around you. And you just started publishing a few years ago, but I'm wondering, A, I'm assuming you were writing the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> B, has it, has it always been that sort of therapeutic tool for you, a way to make sense of things? I, I I, I'm glad you said that, though, too, because that is exactly what I think of writing as a way to make sense of things going on around you. Right. I, you're right. It, definitely. It's all it's coincidence that all of a sudden all these books come out. I mean, as you know, as we all know, the, the rejection slips that are waiting for you every every month, every year. Um, so I was fortunate to to have someone believe in my work. And I found that person actually through my political work um, up here. And so once I was in print, then the world sort of opened up. I mean, I'm very excited to be um, published by the University of New Mexico Press. Um, Before that, it's been uh, the Red Mountain Press and this one editor who's really harsh and demanding, but just she hung in there with me, uh, Susan Gardner. And so, um, boy, I've just learned a lot and to get to your point larry like a lot of times i'll tell people you know that are writing and they're frustrated or whatever stage they are in with their writing career like i just always tell them man you get so much out of it like just by doing it like it just gives you so much so yeah it it sucks not to be published it sucks to lose an election (laughs) you know winning is great on both of those fronts it's great to be in print and sort of and and be on the other side of that but it's um it gives you so much so yeah i just um you know it's interesting i'm dealing with some family reaction to my work which um half my brothers like it 
sort of and the other half like no and and so you know and it, it, i mean that's a whole other issue just dealing with like uh, if you're going to write personally you know you involve folks in your life and hopefully they understand that there's a larger picture and that is trying to create something of interest that isn't verbatim you know you but obviously your my brother for example he's very much a part of that my first book but it's kind of a flattering i would say but it's just it just i've just always thought i've always just assumed nothing was more important than the than the artistic and whatever can serve that fine and then i can deal with personal um personal responses later better to ask for forgiveness and permission i guess how, right. how does that work for you ben because your work is I mean, you've written a mem- at least one memoir. Was only one of them was a memoir? The father one? Yeah, it's funny. I, I thought I wrote an essay collection, and then the publisher's like, I think this is a memoir. And then I said, <laughs> will that sell better? And he said, I hope so. But uh, <laughs> it is it is certainly mem- memoir, the vibe. I organized it like a yeah. memoir. I, you know, uh, it wasn't intentional. But I wrote these two essay collections, and the first one was very much about being a father. Uh, what I didn't intend with that one was to write a book about being a father, ruminating on having a dead father, uh, which I do, which I you know, have for a long time. I was very close to him. He'll, he'll never meet my sons, which is wild to me. But uh, that first one, I felt like the rule was, you know, don't write anything that the children will be especially offended by when they get older. They could be upset, right? We could work that out in therapy. But I didn't want to expose any of their secrets, even though they were little kids, you know, like if it felt like a secret, I stayed away from it. And really, which is very self-absorbed, I was always the main character in those essays, right? At one point, my older son, now he's a strapping 19-year-old, then he was, I don't know, an angry nine-year-old. He's like, so do I get to read the book? And I said, I don't think so. And then he said, am I not the main character? He's always had a very healthy ego, definitely my kid. And I said, you know, you're really not the main character. I am. And then he said, well, why wouldn't you want me to read it? And, you know, I always try to be as transparent and appropriate. I said, look, man, I said, I'm really fucked up. And I'd like you to learn that at a slower pace than you'll get in this book. (laughs) So better you learn about that stuff over time. He's like, whatever. So that was the end of that conversation. Um, But he was the only one I was really worried about with that book. And that remains to be seen. I mean, luckily, he doesn't really read. So I totally blew that as a parent. Um, The next book, it's funny, I told this story the other day. The next book was intended to be like a sweeping, again, ego, like a sweeping essay collection over multiple decades, sort of telling a larger narrative with my obsession with being cool. Like that was my focus. Like, what does it mean to spend your whole life trying to figure out how to be, you know, how to be cool? And there's an essay I wrote about my father. I think I can say that. Uh, but inspired by a friend of mine, we went running. We had a super intense conversation. And it just gave me a lot of insight about my own dad, her talking about her dad. I knew my mother would not want that essay published. Mm-hmm. So, and he was already dead. And I wouldn't have, I would have never asked his permission for anything. But I asked my mom's permission. I said, hey, this collection's coming out, but I will I will withhold this one essay, no other one, if you're upset. And I sent it to her and she wrote me back and she's like, fuck no. And I said, okay. She said, you need <laughs> to save that for, she said, you need to save that for after I'm dead. And I went, good enough. But now, of course, she's living forever and she's messing up my plans. But I honestly consider it. I mean, it's funny. It sounds like I'm Orson Welles or something. It's one of the best things I ever wrote. And I just set it aside. I love that collection. But to your Mm -hmm. point, Larry, I'm not really worried about offending anyone. But I know what people, again, I'm the son of a therapist and like Bill, been in therapy for years and years. I always know what people's weak spots are. And I'm just very careful about it. You know, I consider it like a superpower. If you know what people are vulnerable about and you don't care, then you're just kind of a dick, you know? So I went to my mom, I said, no other thing will I ever run by you, but I'll run this by you. And she said, please Mm -hmm. no. And I said, good enough. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like this is one of the main concerns of writers who write personal things. And, um, I have a real problem with it. Like, oh, shoot. Like, I, I, I remember years and years ago, I did a blog. Some people were doing blogs. And my mother, <laughs> about a month in, my mother said, boy, you get pretty personal in there. 
<laughs> thought about that wow. every single time I wrote in there after that because yeah. it's not necessarily a question of offending people it's hurting them that I would do right well I'm curious like on that front you know sort of about like like Bill especially being probably the most <clears throat> forward like public facing human here in this conversation like I mean how is that to navigate you know and and I do your I mean I don't know your advisors, your staff, your, you know, some of your constituents, how do they like, do they like, oh my gosh, this guy is not, especially like, I suppose in the fictional form, but also in the poetic form, people, people who don't read a lot of creative writing always think it's just all about you. Like, oh, really? Right. You, hated, you hated your mother? I'm like, oh no, my mother's actually not dead and I don't hate her. It's a story I wrote. I, and I think that's, you know, it's probably a, a, among us right now, I mean, a very specific thing you had to kind of think about, I suppose, as a writer, perhaps. I don't know. What do you think, Bill? No, that's very good. I have to mention my first book, which was um, The Freedom of the Ignored, and it came from my experience up here in the Roundhouse. And I was very concerned, not only is it my first time in print, but there were many, many profiles of people that I serve with, you know, uh, representatives and senators, even the governors. And so um, happily, the book came out and I was able to, and everybody has a pseudonym, right? But, but still, um, very clearly, these people were who they were. And I was able to, with every individual who was literally up here and those that had you know, gone elsewhere, I, I found them. And what I did is I, I met with them and I read the poem to them. And of course I read it in a certain way. <laughs> if there were some negative parts, you know, like we'll sort of like not emphasize that so much, but, but to a person, and I was concerned, I was really concerned about potentially people being really offended, but to a person, they were flattered. They were just over the moon that they were a, a subject of, of, of writing. And I don't know how much people really read the poems in question. Um, you know, one senator in particular, like, I don't think it's that flattering, but he just loves it. And so fast forward, I have people to this day going, O'Neill, when are you going to write about me? You know, so that was real interesting. Uh, but I like what Larry said. You know, I think you expressed it really well. Like, whatever that is, it's not, you don't want to hurt them, you know, or it's so much offending. It's just like, you don't want people to, to be hurt by what you write. I think I had a very negative experience uh, recently when I read from my first book, Panoramic Diaries, and my older brother was on the Zoom. And at the end of this wonderful reading, it was in Taos, it was a virtual, he gets on and he goes, I just want to know how you could have the nerve to dedicate this book to our father and i was like what and the people that were on there were like what i mean did you not read the book you know to me there's a lot of reconciliation there but he was you know he's protecting the brand you know and and so i was that was like a really negative experience <laughs> and so that's and so obviously it hurt his feelings i guess but that he's just got to deal with it. You know, it's easy when it's family and you can just right. say, Oh yeah, that's sure. Probably, that's probably something that seemed innocuous to you at the time, dedicating the book to your father. Well, and more than that, it was an honoring. It was yeah. a, the whole reason I wrote the freaking book. You know, I don't know. It was a deep, deep, you know, you don't anyway, but it's just, uh, people will, you know, I mean, my sibling, I'm one of five siblings. So everybody would have a different version of, of our father. They would. They would have much different versions. So that was my version. But, you know, that just really, uh, that that really hurt. And it was so awkward. I had one, one of my friends text me immediately. He goes, is he a stepbrother? No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> like, it was, anyway. So Christian asked about constituents, and I'm wondering, so uh, you, just how you've described yourself as a public figure and as a, as a politician, you're the, you seem like you're the out there guy. You want to be kind of the out there guy. So in that case, if that's your brand, being a poet and a writer, does that help your brand or hurt your brand? When you publish these books, do constituents go, yeah, I knew it, figures, 
Well, it's more uh, getting their attention <laughs> that I actually am a writer, you know. So, um, but yeah, no, it definitely helps my brand. It's just, it's just, I reflect my district. I have this amazingly progressive, liberal, affluent district in Albuquerque, you know, lots of professors and lawyers and, you know, not just that, but, but um, it's, it's, uh, I've just got nothing but respect for it, you know, for, for, yeah, it sort of fits. And then the, the bookstore that I go to, you know, that sells my work, the independent bookstore is in the middle of my district. So, so it's all, it's been a kind of a nice situation, but I've been concerned though, ethically about using my political form to promote my work. You know, like there, I got, I feel like I, you, there needs to be attention paid to, you know, you don't want to like take, like we're not supposed to ethically use our office to further ourselves economically, mm-hmm. you know? So that like there is some in the background, there's, there's some of that. And I'm careful with that. Like if I'm going to mention my latest book or something, I do it after, Oh, by the way, for those who are interested, you know, at the end of the, at the email newsletter, I just happen to have this book. You might be interested well, in it, you know? Yeah. And you could let them know that like, Poetry makes no money. Right. Right. So, but, um, okay. What then is your role in the literary community in Albuquerque? Well, I will say one of my best, best uh, achievements as a policymaker was I basically started a state poet laureate program in our state. Um, we didn't have one up until two years ago. We're one of two states, that, and that this is the whole state. Um, you know, we were, uh, every state has something just about, I mean, usually it's a, oh, here's your state poet laureate, here's a check for $2,000, have fun. Whereas out here, I was able to take advantage of my position here with some funding and was able to start our first New Mexico State Poet Laureate program. And so that, like, you can imagine when I go to poetry readings, I, I'm rather well-received, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, yeah, he's the guy that got us at least the chance of being oh, yeah. a State Poet Laureate. So, yeah, and, and so I'm able to advocate for the arts. Um, you know, I have access to funding, and so that's been really good. And then just... Locally, I mean, just have a community that revolves around this wonderful bookstore called Bookworks. It's in the North Valley of Albuquerque. And, you know, definitely um, I'm a part of that community. And and, uh, certainly there's a wonderful, I'm talking to you from Santa Fe. There's a wonderful open mic that happens every month and it's gone on for years in Santa Fe. But that uh, has been real helpful to me. Um, you You get three minutes and and you just do your thing and it just uh to the degree it really helps me to read my work just oral you know just to hear it and i can edit it you know as a result so so i'm a part of that community and so and then to my millennial friends i go to the same coffee place every morning i can't help it it's just such good coffee and and they know oh here here's the guy that's like the legislator in any rights book so i kind of have my place in the world out here you it's know cool. um let's talk a little bit about when you first got published <clears throat> tell, tell us a little bit about how that went down okay i mentioned that state poet laureate initiative it takes many things take years to actually come to fruition on the policy front. So my editor, my now editor, she and her husband had, came to the legislature to to start a poet laureate program in the state. And so they were naturally steered towards me. And that's how I met them. And so that's um, we did a, a what's called a memorial. We did a couple trial runs with bills. The money wasn't there. Um, also, it was a Republican administration, um, so it just wasn't going to work. But we we laid the foundation. So basically, I met I met my ultimate you know publisher editor through my political involvement. So that's how that came to be. And then, boy, she was just really she's 
Susan has been really a huge influence on me. <laughs> and uh, I just am um, grateful that uh, that she hung in there and that we both survived each other. It was not a it was not an easy relationship at certain points. Translated, I thought I had two different novels for that first novel. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and said, This is one book, kind of like what happened with Ben, like this is a memoir or whatever. It's like this is one novel. And that was the challenge with Panoramic Diaries is to two, turn two separate narratives into one novel. So so that was um, really hard. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just feel, wow, writing novels, it's just, man, it's hard to keep track of everything. And like a poem, you can just rework. You know, it's just like, it's a moment in time. Yeah. Did you have to but, write the names so you wouldn't forget them? I would forget. I would read this thing like, who wrote it? Like, what? Did I write this? <laughs> no, I mean... You know, even to where I thought I had a whole character in my second book, I thought, wait a minute, I had this like therapist character in there, and I guess he's not in there. I must have just imagined it, you know. So I just feel relieved after all these, you know, the last several years, it's just been rewriting. It just, I mean, just air quotes, but it, but it's, you know, I'm finally, I'm ready to face the blank page again after just reworking, reworking stuff. You know, you got something up there, Chris? I did. Well, just a little bit of a shift. I mean, maybe back to sort of like the constituents notion. But I mean, I don't know if there are particularly your constituents, but the I mean, a lot of people you write about, I mean, especially in your latest book of poetry. I mean, were you able to I mean, I'm sure that some of your like actual voting constituents out there in your district are reading some of your work but did you share some of your work with the people you wrote about i mean i, I mean i assume they're like pseudonyms yeah. or i'm not sure well, well you know, it's more but, yeah. like i haven't i've yet to do really the official launch in albuquerque of the poetry book but definitely with my novel um my most recent novel one of the main characters her name's Coulter, and for sure you know i sent her the book uh i sent I sent a lot of, you know, this, this novel so rooted in New Mexico politics. There are a lot of people that are, are in it, honestly. So I made sure that I, that I got the book to them. And yeah, I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the negative response. Like one, there's a character in my novel short session that he, he's a Republican and I'm a Democrat and he's kind of a controversial guy. I think, I just don't, I think I, it's a flattering, I think it's a pretty good rendition of him, but I was concerned. I was concerned about his response. He loved it. I mean, it's just kind of, maybe it's because of these political types. They just like attention. I don't know. Like, right. what, what it is. but, but I mean, that way he's a key character in this book. And I was, I was nervous about his response, but it helps when people like it, you know? Right. And then well, I, I guess got, I would- yeah. I'm just uh, sorry to uh, interrupt you, but I, no, I no, guess no. with more of the like the 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 kids, you know, yeah. sort of the, the the I mean the people who are like yeah, you know, sort of the incarcerated juveniles. I, I mean, were you able to share any of that work with them like that you've done? Well, you know, I don't these, know how that works, but I mean, it, I think, it doesn't work very well because these are, um, you know, the kids. They just vanish into the hopefully into a better life. And it was a while ago, and a lot of it wasn't literal. A lot of it was composites, mm-hmm. but um, but for sure, I mean, um, well, there's a poem with Jimmy Baca that I, I made sure Jimmy got that poem, um, Jimmy Santiago Baca. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's yeah, like if they're available, yeah. But these kids, you know, I don't know where they are. I hope they're doing well, you know. But that is a thought that maybe I would want to follow up. That that would be, you know what? Thanks for asking that question, because maybe with some work I could find them, you know, because for sure um, <clears throat> that, would, that would be something yeah. worth doing. I would think, yeah, for sure. Well, who knows if they probably wouldn't take it on like politicians per se, but probably would feel quite honored that you took their name. I hope so. And, like put it out there. No, I, I must say the, a real uh, interesting moment with that book is I had to do a mea culpa for the Chicano studies 
department. How could I, as a white guy, presume to weigh in on the experience of Hispanic youth? And which was really insulting to me on a lot of levels, but my sister helped me with that forward. And, um, you know, I'm glad, I don't know, I just made it clear. I'm just speaking from my own experience. I was honored to be in this situation, giving voice to these folks. But, you know, we're in such a sensitive time that way. There's kind of a taste of, you know, I'm not in academia. I don't know if any of you are, but I'm not in academia. So I just get a sense of like, whoa, you know, and my, my editors from the University of New Mexico Press, they were like rolling their eyes going, I'm sorry, we got, we need you to do this. You know, it's, there's a forward in the beginning that my sister basically wrote because I was just too angry to, <laughs> um, to do that. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's just, um, that was interesting. So, but I'll take it like, you know, at University Press, I think, at least in New Mexico, it, it's a joint decision. It's like interdisciplinary. I'm sure the, the English department understood it, you know, better than maybe some other departments. Um, I want Ben to put on his publicist hat here for a second. <laughs> uh, you leaned forward. I thought you were going to reach up and actually put on a hat. <laughs> that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so <clears throat> in promoting books that Bill has written, what are the special challenges and maybe advantages of him already having a public profile? You know, how do you avoid feeling like, you know, oh, he's just a politician who writes a book. You know, it's like Billy Bob Thornton's band or something. How do you make sure it's taken seriously? And how do you leverage that he's already got a platform? And that's a series of really good questions and things we think about, right? So part of it with any author, and we're all authors here, is what's the hook? So Bill being a politician is a great hook. I don't treat it as, and this may be both my, positive and negative traits as a publicist, I don't treat it as anything but a positive. And I sort of bull right through it. Like this guy's a politician. I know that's going to get your attention. Now I'm going to hype the hell out of what he's writing about. So, you know, to me, it's like, here's the hook, but here's the meat. So that's part of it. The, the, the leveraging part in Bill's case, which is really positive and interesting is that he has a lot of connections and he certainly has notoriety. No, that sounds more negative. He, people yeah. know who he is. So, you know, I can say to Bill, you know, I can say, and this is an interesting thing, by the way, about publicists. So it's also like a, a teachable moment. You know, for people like me to do our job really well, I need to constantly be building contacts and looking for angles and thinking about things and making sure I'm taking care of people along the way too, right? Like I have a big podcast. I do all sorts of stuff for people and always have. And so hopefully it feels mutual. Like I felt comfortable. I haven't talked to Christian in a couple of years, but I would love Bill to be at StoryForward if it works out. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel uncomfortable writing to Christian and saying, hey, man, I know it's been a while, but I've got a really dynamite author you might be interested in. I hope Christian feels like, oh, good, Ben's a friend. He doesn't have to check in once a month. You know, I also wouldn't abuse it. And so I'm very careful about that. But, you know, with someone like Bill, which is really helpful with authors, and this is a pitch to all authors, Someone like me can do a good job because we're constantly hustling and looking for opportunities and making friends and trying to make sure we're supportive. But Bill's got a lot of connections. So I actually say to all authors, who do you know? Who do you think you know? Who have you ever crossed paths with? I want the entire list from your head and then I'll do all the work. And I think with someone like Bill, though Bill, I don't want to speak for you, he's a really busy person, right? He's already discussed being a state senator, an author, a caretaker. He's got like 700 siblings, like he's got a lot to do, you know? So for someone like Bill, part of my job is just saying, you don't have time to pursue everything. Since you're paying me, I have all the time in the world. So give me everything in your head. So one of the interesting dances has been, I get to write to someone and say, look at, you know, Bill's a state Senator and a great author, but he's asking me to take care of this. So can we set up a reading? What can I do? How much, how little can we have Bill do? You know, let me set him up. And that's a good way to do the job. And I make that pitch to all authors and all publicists. You know, I can get Bill stuff. All sorts of things have come up. But Bill knows a lot of people, and I have pursued every one of them. What I think is funny is that in a couple of cases, I've been really pursuing someone. They may or may not have responded, but then they just reach out directly to Bill. So that's the other interesting part about working with someone who's got notoriety. 
they may, I may be the trigger, but they don't necessarily follow up with me. Like there, I don't know which of Bill's pa- newspapers it was. One of them you said historically hadn't looked at your right. books. But, and so yeah, I sort yeah. of stalked, I sort of stalked the editor, even to the point where I reached out to him on LinkedIn. He never responded to a single pitch. But like a week later, Bill's like, oh, such and such reached out to me. So they never acknowledged that I was chasing them. Wow, like okay. months. But the person did accept my LinkedIn request and then did follow up the bill. So that's an interesting kind of win. So, you know, to that point, there's really no downside to Bill being popular. Um, and really, any publicist is thrilled when their authors know people. So he's been an interesting thing. But, you know, I never treat anything as negative either. I'm always like, this is awesome. This is awesome. You want to be part of this. if if, bill if you release a book during a normal year when we're not sitting inside our houses yeah what are the demands on your time to go tour with the book or do more readings or see larry i honestly don't know because this has just been kind of frame my experience i do know i'm really grateful for the zoom readings because suddenly your local launch can be you know 40, 50 people from across the country, you know, so that's been cool. But yeah, like I, I'm very new at this and I'm learning a lot from Ben and in this whole process of marketing. Yeah, I would really like to, you know, I love Oregon. You know, I have a friend that uh, runs that Ashland, one of those independent bookstores in Ashland. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have certain places I would like to go. Boise, you know, yeah. Bozeman, Montana, you know certain places asserting a western identity that i have yeah, western absolutely pals, dare, dare i say pals i have this fantasy about pals you know <laughs> i know that is pretty fancy and, and yeah that is pretty <laughs> yeah so backing up a step then what made you decide to hire a publicist for this book well as i i said to like okay yeah mm-hmm. there's this dear constituent of mine just down the street Hush, Hasho, and he's a poet, and I was literally getting my signatures to get on the ballot for this current go-round of the election, and of course, that after he signed the petition, we immediately launched, pick up where we left off from our previous conversation about poetry, and and he just randomly suggested that, you know, you might want to, you might want to hire somebody to to promote your work. And I had never even thought about that. And then he goes, I think I know somebody that might be a good fit. So that's how, that's how that went. Once again, politics and my literary interests, you know, just complementing each other or intersecting, you know, literally once again. And so, and then also, as I've shared with Ben on occasion, for whatever reason, politics is a muse for me. It just continues to be, and it's it's uh, frames my outward life, and there's just so much um, going on in that regard that uh, that I look forward to to addressing with the blank page once again. I, I want to get back to poetry. It just um, after rewriting these two novels, <laughs> I just like I just you know poetry is where like it's at least that's a good place to start. And if I get an idea for a, another story. Um, then you know so be it but but uh yeah it's all been very interesting well let's well, do speaking this. of which i will i'm gonna i'll butt in here mr rosen what i think it'd be really great to you know actually hear one of your poems read aloud hey, right now so and i think ben we're gonna like save your reading for when we get you on for our, our next incarnation of the podcast and a little maybe longer section of um, upstate or whatever you're working on. Let him read. I want to hear that one. I want, I do want to hear that one. The one that his mom wouldn't let him publish. Oh yeah. (laughs) At least a part of that. Yeah. So we're going to have to set a date for far down the road, but absolutely. Okay. (laughs) But I mean, well, but yeah, Bill, I, Sure. I give us one that I, I don't know if you have one prepped or whatever. But give us a little. Well, I mean, just going from our conversation, I love this Western, the Western theme, and I did mention that poem um, that's based on just traveling with my with my other half um, through this wonderful West, and it's called Twelve Hours in the Car." 
Let's light fires, she exclaims. My co-pilot there in her front seat agony with the multiple lesions in her brain. We are coasting down the interstate, high above the Salt Valley. She's like Miss Paris, 1985, she adds from out of nowhere, our dog panting in the back seat. Below, we can see the triumphant freight trains that I once glided upon. The outskirts of the Wyoming State Fair, blue sky, the occasional hawk, silence. But we wouldn't wear the moccasin, she continues, as we concoct a resurrected future together. A hilltop stone house, one story, carpet everywhere, and a bathroom of soft rubber. Maybe in Buffalo, Wyoming, who knows? Maybe then I could maintain that the canyon never did make me crazy. This time, I would not invent a reason to visit town. Variations of thirst. And from our imaginary living room, we could see the 1920s. Down below the massive town pool with its swirling currents and bighorn rock construction. All of this we could do, if we imagine it, as long as the other dark presence cooperates. No longer doomed, something else now transformed in her freckled smile, her freckled smile, the first one for miles. So that's, you know, that's comes from our conversation about the West and so forth. Yeah. And, right. and so we'll give some snaps <laughs> for that one. Okay. <laughs> nice. yeah. All right. Your, your reading is the antidote for boring poetry reading voice. Oh, okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, did, did you want to hear the first, because we're talking about the freight trains and this may be off. Do you want to hear the first paragraph of my first novel and then the first paragraph of my second novel? Not to be yeah. greedy. No, but I mean, no. it kind of fits with your Western thing, right? Uh, Go for so, it. All right. So, <laughs> all right. so this is called, uh, this is from Panoramic Diaries, chapter one. It's actually quite easy hopping a freight, especially if you have experience. Back to my days of self-exploration before I joined the world, workaday that is, that world, and the affirmation in a paycheck. Boxcars are the stereotype, of course, and that's where I am now, eyeing the massive steel door, making sure it's secure. But I prefer the undercarriage of a truck trailer, even if it means I'm directly exposed to the wind. It's no problem leaning up against the large tires, and the underbelly of the truck chassis provides plenty of shelter. It doesn't matter if I've forgotten most of their names, the state prisoners who came to us at Hope House, they gave my life meaning because I found my place in the world as their advocate. They were full of color and sadness, and there are some I could never forget. My Estes with his Easter basket walking down the quiet Sunday street for an early morning dish shift. Mary Lou's proud clayed rendition of herself after she was hit in the face with a fire poker. Samuel's tears streaking his African profile. Ernestine's overall accusatory way Lewis's con man laugh, all of them adding up to a chorus of lament. So you get the sense. I mean, that's kind of like my first book. But okay, now, this is my second book, okay? And this is the same narrator 10 years later. All right. Oh, okay. Okay. I should clarify that I was not exactly in the narrator's Chapman Murphy. This is his name. I should clarify that I was not exactly invited to run for state senate district 10. People like me who feel such an urge or a calling, we don't need to be prodded. We are alert to the opportunity when it presents itself. An incumbent retiring, a new district created courtesy of gerrymandering, a bad vote. There's always the justification deep down that we advocates can do a better job. We can do this better, that we belong in that role instead. In my case, I need to also admit that my reasons for declaring were less than pure. I wanted to play in the House Senate charity basketball game. I admit it. This annual event, complete with uniforms, coaches, announcers, referees, cheerleaders, played in front of a nearly full high school gym, a band even, all proceeds to the local homeless shelter, had me imagining from the bleachers what I could do if given the opportunity to play. Yeah, but you had to be a legislator in order to play. No staff or lobbyists, no former governors. 
Each chamber represented one of the two dueling state universities, which plugged into that rivalry as well. I had visions of how many baskets I could score, three pointers as well, but I needed to get elected first. So that's, you know, that's like the same guy 10 years later. So <laughs> when I first, when I read, so I had read that first paragraph of the first book and I thought, is he talking about hiding under semi trucks? And now I realize, yes. no, wait, you're under the truck? Yeah, because it's, it's a natural because they're low. You know, like with a boxcar, you have to jump up higher, but a, a truck trailer is low. And then, you know, you just lean up against the tires, right, under the truck. Okay. But you're, um, you're yeah. out in the open air, but you're sheltered except when it rains, um, yeah. you know, by the actual truck. I thought you were actually a pick a truck with a semi would come by and you'd crawl underneath it. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I know you. Like, yeah. Removed, but okay. Well, that, that yeah, was, that's a great way to wrap it up because we're out of time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we yeah. are pretty much out of time. It's true, but we would love to have. As I always say, and Larry's like, "How are you going to get all these people to story for it?" But we would love oh. to have you, you know, Bill and Ben, like both at Story Fort and Tree Fort which we are actually doing in September of this year, um, but it's going to be kind of more robust in 2022. So I think that might be our great goal to have you both here. And oh, that'd be fun. Oh, man, it's it's very fun. I mean, Larry, maybe, yeah. Well, you, I was just you, saying, 2022, count me in. I should be vaccinated by then. <laughs> I know here in Idaho, it's all comers now. So yeah. Super slow in Illinois. <laughs> Good. Hey, thank you so much. I, this was so fun. I know. Like final words, Ben. What do you What do you have to say about Bill's work, your own work? What should we know about you guys actually moving forward? Tell us where to go to find everything. That's good. Well, you know, Bill needs to do a lot of work on social media. Let me tell you. <laughs> so I've been, I've been quietly pushing him, but I really do want to say, I mean, I'm thrilled we got to do this and uh, it's really been an honor working with Bill the last several months. I mean, all of a sudden a person has three books coming out in six months. Uh, you know, he's just a really stand up human who writes beautiful words. And to me, I can't imagine a better place or a spot to work in, you know, I mean, I love his politics. I love his writing. It's really been an honor. I owe Osho many drinks. I probably owe Osho many drinks anyway at this point. <laughs> I should say Bill gave him a plug, but Osho McCreesh is a beautiful writer as well. Terrific poet, great debut novel. Um, and yeah, I'm honored. I mean, I've told this story in other places. You know, I was a voracious reader from the second I could read. And uh, while it's always cool to meet all sorts of celebrities and athletes and the models, I'm sure, I always thought it would be cool to meet writers. So this whole phase of my life where I get to meet writers, hang out right. with writers, promote their books, it honestly is shocking to me. And uh, it's a real blessing. I mean, as a non-spiritual person, it's a real blessing. Cool. Bill, Bill what do you have to say for yourself? Where should we actually find your work? Yeah. Well, um, just it's available on Amazon, which I'm not supposed to say, <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's two bookstores, one in Santa Fe, one in Albuquerque that has all my work. One's uh, Bookworks in Albuquerque and Collected Works in uh, Santa Fe. Uh, final thoughts is to thank both of our guests for being here. Uh, ben, we want to get you uh, back here by yourself so you can regale us with many stories about trying to be cool and mm -hmm. being a father and... Old writing books, short stories about upstate New York and doing all the things you do and your podcast, which I'm going to talk about after we finish. Uh, until then, I guess we'll see you at the fest. We'll see you at the fest. Thanks, you guys. All right. Okay. Well, hey, that was our episode. Thanks for listening. Larry Rosen and I had a good time talking with Ben and Bill. And you can find out more about what Ben does out there in the world at Tanzer. T-A-N-Z-E-R, Ben.com. You can look up some of Bill O'Neill's work at redmountainpress.us. As well as he can just be Googled. This guy's kind of well-known in the uh, Southwest and out here in Idaho now. So we want to thank Up Is The, Down Is The for the awesome theme music. We want to thank Eavesdrop Studios. That's E-A-S-E-Drop.com. You can find out about that network that we're on. And I want to thank everybody at Treefort Music Fest. TreefortMusicFest.com is where you can get your tickets, where you can get your merch, where you can find out about 
Story Fort and all the other forts. And uh, we'll have uh, that September lineup coming your way pretty soon. So that's going to be pretty great. And we're um, hanging in there. As mentioned before, it's spring. It feels like uh, something new is in the air. We're getting vaccinated. We're staying safe. And we're enjoying putting out podcasts. So thanks for listening and take care. Tomorrow, but tomorrow never came.